0: Happy Father's Day to the, uh, to the fathers out there. If you didn't see when you came in, we have coolers in both, uh, at the top of uh, both of the stairways full of dad's rip So if you are a father, uh, feel free to grab one of those, bring it home tonight. Uh, a lot of our fathers are off camping with their daughters this weekend, which was, uh, kind of ended up being a tough weekend to be, to be camping outside. So if you are a uh, mom and a wife of one of those... Or if you're going to see your dad uh, later on today, there's plenty of uh, root beer, so grab one of those on your way out. I was actually at Barnes & Noble just a few days ago, and I was looking uh, at, the, at the new books, and one of them was a book that's called Do Fathers Matter? And I, I just briefly looked at it. Obviously, they have it uh, placed out because it's Father's Day, and it, it was just published, so it, it just came out. And the author of this book, Do Fathers Matter, his name is Paul Rayburn, and he's the chief media critic for MIT's Knight Science Journalism Tracker site, which I don't know what that exactly is, but that sounds really impressive. Anyway, he writes this book, Do Fathers Matter? First of all, do not do that if you are a father. That's, uh, that's, 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 pretty, that's pretty, pretty high. Um, And basically, what he does is he looks at all these different studies, tons and tons of scientific studies, and finds out, do fathers matter? And uh, in one word, yes, they do matter. And he sees it from science. The Bible talks about it all the time as well. And so if you are a father today, know that your job is very, very important. Know that you get to represent uh, God the Father. God the Father says, I give my name to fathers here on earth, and they get to represent me. And so if you are a father, be encouraged. Know that your job is very important, that both uh, this Paul Rayburn as well as the Bible speaks of how God is going to use you in, in your children's lives. And for some of you, maybe you grew up without a father, or maybe your dad was very distant or, or unloving. And for you, it's really hard to wrap your, your mind around this idea of, of who God is, because God's called the father and the only father that you have known maybe as an abusive father or a father who's gone or a father who's very distant, who didn't express love, who didn't show you that he cared for you. And today in our passage, God is going to be uh, described again as a father. And as we're reading today, if you're wondering who God really is, if you're wondering uh, what his character is, look today at your heavenly father and see Jesus is going to be teaching about this. See who God really is, not through who maybe your father was. All of our fathers, even if we have great fathers, have let us down, and hurt us at some time. So today in our passage, as we celebrate Father's Day, many of us, let's uh, look to the, to the Bible and see who our Heavenly Father really is. So if you're a dad today, take a nap, grab some root beer on your way out, and enjoy, enjoy your special day. But then tomorrow, wake up and know that your job is uh, priceless. So, all right, uh, let's move on. Even though it's very rainy and nasty outside, it is now wedding season. So let me officially welcome you to wedding season. I know many of you, many of you here today are feeling like those two guys at the bottom. You're thrilled that wedding season is here. The weather is finally nice. Lots of weddings are happening now in the spring and in the summer. My wife and I are actually going to two different weddings this summer. We're actually going to be in them and we're very excited to see uh, some of our best friends um, get married this summer. It reminds me also of our wedding. Uh, there's a picture of, of young Amy and Spencer years and years ago. We actually got married right here on this stage uh, 2007, July 28th. Here's a little free hint to any guy out there. That's an important date to remember. Make sure you uh, remember your wedding date. But anyway, I, I remember our wedding and it was one of, one of the best days of my life. And I know that it wasn't just Uh, An amazing day for myself and my wife, but also our guests, and especially our parents who had spent uh, decades raising Amy and myself, and we're very, very blessed and excited to invite their friends and welcome their friends to the wedding of their children. Weddings are often some of the biggest celebrations that we as humans have. They're some of the biggest days in the lives of both the people getting married as well as many uh, of the guests, and especially the parents. Today, in our passage, Jesus is going to use this common celebration that many of us experience, visit, see, watch, and participate in to teach that the Jewish, relig- the Jewish religious leaders and rulers, that the kingdom of God is being brought into the world like, like a wedding feast. And we're going to see the character of God through this parable. Jesus is going to be teaching about a wedding, the wedding of his son, Jesus. Welcome to Hyloth. If this is your first time, uh, we have been in a study in the book of Matthew, and so today's passage is coming out of Matthew. Jesus has been uh, teaching parables the past couple weeks. Today we're in chapter 22, and today we're actually not going to read the whole passage right up front Instead, we're going to go through Jesus' parable today, and we're going to look at it verse by verse and unpack it as Jesus tells this story. So today, we're going to start right away in uh, verse 1 of Matthew 22. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And so, in case you're wondering, a parable is actually, it's a short story that is used to illustrate or teach some type of truth. And in this case, Jesus is using these parables to teach about his kingdom. He's giving the short story to illustrate some great truths about it. And we see that uh, in verse 1, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable. So just previous to this, Jesus has taught two other parables. Last week, Peter taught on those parables. And today's one uh, was all with the previous two, we're all taught in the same time. So this one, we should be thinking of the previous two as we're, as we're hearing today's. So last week, Jesus just got finished teaching two other parables, all teaching this, this same truth. So last week, we saw the parable of the two sons. So in this parable, there's a man who had two sons. The first son uh, told his father that he was going to go do what the father asked and go and work in the vineyard, and then he chose not to do it. So he lied and, and, and deceived his father, whereas the second son he initially told his father, no, I'm not going to go do what you want. I'm not going to go out to the field. But then later changed his mind and obeyed. And then the second parable we saw last week was the parable of the tenants. So there's this master who owned a vineyard and he was betrayed by the tenants who were, who were working it, who oversaw the vineyard. So when the master came and, and, and sent word and asked for him to receive his due payment for owning this vineyard, the tenants denied him They hurt and they killed these servants, these messengers, and they even murdered the master's son. So both both of these parables, they have a similar theme that the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, have rejected the Messiah, and now that the gospel is spreading beyond them because they've rejected the Messiah, and it's spreading to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Uh, The first parable last week ended with... The, the Pharisees, the religious rulers saying this, they perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. And then Jesus said to them, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom before you. So Jesus is really setting the stage here. He's really, really laying into them. He's saying, you are the religious rulers. You are the people that everyone looks up to, to follow and to, to answer to. You have spiritual authority over all the people. But guess what? The, the, the worst of the worst, the worst sinners, the tax collectors, the people who are embezzling money and stealing money from God's people, as well as the prostitutes, they're entering the kingdom before you. So before we get into our parable today, there's one more thing to note. Often with parables, uh, it's not an exact one-to-one correlation. So again, a parable is a story that teaches a truth. So for example, in ours today, the king is actually referring to God the Father, whereas uh, throughout Matthew we've seen... Jesus be described as the king. So uh, just note that all details in all parables are not meant to be uh, comp- uh, one-to-one correspondences. We're going to see Jesus as the prince in today's story. Uh, the Gospel of Transformation Bible helps summarize these previous two parables and then the one we're going to read today. They write, Much of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel addresses the question, Who belongs to the people of God? Or to put it in another way, who will enter the kingdom of God? These three parables reveal that entering the kingdom involves responding in faith to the message of repentance that John the Baptist and Jesus preached. So we saw that in the parable of the two sons. And recognizing Jesus as the one who is bringing in God's kingdom. We saw that in the parable of the tenants. And then today, and living a way consistent with this recognition. All three parables communicate the sad message that the leaders of Israel had met none of these requirements for participation in God's kingdom. And instead, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and others who respond to Jesus in repentance and faith will compromise a new vineyard vineyard tenants and wedding feasts guests. So in verse 2, Jesus begins this parable by talking about a great wedding feast, a great wedding celebration. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son. So here Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you something about the kingdom, about this kingdom that I am ushering in. It's like, it's like a wedding feast that a king gave to celebrate the wedding of his son. So today in our story, we're going to see God as the king, and we're going to see his son, the one who's getting married, as Jesus. So what's going on so far The RSVPs have been sent out. The Save the Dates have been sent out to all these people who are invited to the king's son's wedding. So the nobles, the important people are getting these. And all these people have responded with RSVPs that say yes. They say, yes, we are coming. We're coming to your son's wedding. We're going to be there. And so these people that are initially invited to the son's wedding are the people of Israel, the Jews. And specifically, they are the religious rulers. If you remember from our, our previous two parables, that Jesus is calling out these religious rulers, who initially were the first people invited to the wedding. So now let's watch, let's watch and see what these people, the initial people who RSVP'd, who said yes. Those who promised the king, I'm coming. I'm coming to your son's wedding. I'm going to accept your invitation and in this great honor that comes with going to your son's wedding feast. Watch how these people respond. Verse 3. And the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So back then, obviously, they didn't have emails or texts or phones, so they couldn't call and tell the people that the time for the wedding had come. So the king sends out his servants to say, hey, the feast is prepared, everything is ready, it's time to come. Come now to the wedding but you see that these people that were initially invited are now not coming. They said they're coming, but now when the invitation, the final invitation is given, they do not come. This should remind us of, of last week of the parable of the two sons. The first son that said, yes, Father, I'll obey, which you said, I'll go uh, work in the vineyard. But then he never ends up doing it. So this is a great, great honor to be invited by the king to his son's wedding feast. So not many of us in here have grown children who have been married, so this might be a little hard for us to really feel what's going on or feel the hurt, the rejection, the heartache of the king when people don't come to his son's wedding. But as I was reading this and studying this, I was thinking about my son. So I have a son named Charlie. He's a little over one year old, and so in March we celebrated his first birthday, And since his name is Charlie, we had a uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory theme uh, wedding. That's the invitation, or not wedding, uh, birthday party. Here's the invitation there. So we had lots and lots and lots of candy. We had a chocolate fountain. We had a soda fountain. Um, Really great time. So anyway, we invited some of our closest friends to come to this. And and we actually had a, a funeral in our family come up. So we had to bump the date back. We had to change the date last minute of the party and then a number of our friends couldn't come to this party and I remember uh, even though they had great great reasons for not being able to come and I knew why they couldn't come there still in my heart was a bit of a bit of pain I was I was a little bit sad I was a little bit hurt I had this protectiveness of my son I wanted him to be celebrated I wanted to I wanted him to feel special and even though he's one he had no idea really who was there but I still, I still felt that a little bit. Now, that's just the birthday party, and that's just the birthday party of a one-year-old who really doesn't understand what's going on. So now, you know, maybe some of you are parents, and you can think a little bit like that. Think about if someone you cared really, really deeply for, whether it's a child, whether it's a, a dear friend, a parent, a spouse, and you send out these invitations, and you pour out your heart, you're very vulnerable, and you say, come celebrate one of my dearest loved ones. And these people don't come. So it's a great, great dishonor to the king that these people are not coming. And not just a dishonor and a rejection, but they're actually disobeying their king. So it's not just they're hurting his feelings and rejecting him as a person. They're disobeying an order of their king. A king who has rightful authority over them. So this feast that the king is inviting people too. It represents enjoying fellowship with God in his kingdom. It's an invitation for them to come to him, to enter into his kingdom, to be his friends, to be with him. So when the religious rulers are rejecting this invitation, they're rejecting relationship with God. They're rejecting entering his kingdom. But they would not come. How do you think that a king would respond to this. And these people, they don't even really apologize, and they don't really make any good excuses, but rather they just show apathy. They say they're going to come, they get the final invitation, but they don't show up. What would you expect a king who is insulted and publicly disobeyed and rejected? What would you expect him to do? And obviously we know that this king is God, so we probably can guess that he's going to be kind and patient and gracious. But think about that. Think about the kings that you maybe have read about or some uh, people who have ultimate authority. If they were publicly insulted and rejected and disobeyed, what do you think that they would do? Let's read in verse 4. Jesus continues, And again the king sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See? I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So look, look at how patient, how kind, how merciful the king is to these people. Even after he's just been rejected and embarrassed and deceived by them. Even after being lied to and dishonored. He's pleading with them to come making himself look very vulnerable or even embarrassed by pleading with these people. The king pleading to to commoners to come to his party. And then he kindly goes on to tell them about all the goodness that he has. He's prepared the best dinner, filet mignon and shrimp. It's like like going to Fogo de Chao or something like that. And he not only tells them of this great feast, that they get to be a part of, he tells them and reminds them of his generosity and his goodness. And here's the kicker. The guests have to do absolutely nothing. The guests don't have to earn an invitation. The guests don't have to buy an invitation. The guests don't have to look good or clean up. The king has done everything for them. Listen to that. The king has done everything for them, and all the guests have to do, come. Accept his invitation. Some of you might be thinking, hey, this language sounds very familiar. This language sounds like gospel that gets preached here every Sunday. Or you might be thinking, hey, I'm starting to get what Jesus is saying here. So I I put this up in a chart form so we kind of get what's going on. So the king, again, is God and his son is is, uh, Jesus in this parable. So this wedding feast is symbolizing a relationship with God. He's inviting people to come and to have a relationship with him, to enter into his kingdom. And it's cool, at the end of the Bible, at the very end, after Jesus comes back and he defeats our enemies, he defeats Satan, he defeats sin and death, the Bible ends with this giant wedding feast. A huge party, a great celebration, where Jesus is celebrating with his bride, which is us, the church. And then these guests that are invited first would be the Jews or the people of Israel, and specifically, Jesus is calling out the religious rulers. All right, so maybe they'll come now, right? Maybe after the king was very patient with them, who reminded them of this great feast and all the goodness and all the generosity that he was going to pour out on these people, maybe now they'll come, right? Maybe now after hearing that they're forgiven for rejecting him the first time, and that he has looked over their apathy and disrespect, and maybe even after hearing how great this party is going to be, the greatest party that this kingdom has ever seen, maybe now they'll come, right? Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Again, they reject him, even after he is patient and kind and forgiving, reminds them of his great generosity and his goodness and what they will what they will receive. All they have to do is just come. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson comments on this. He says, Those invited stay away for mundane and selfish reasons. They slight the king, whose invitation is both an honor and a command, and the marriage of whose son is a time for special joy. These people give really poor excuses. In the book of Luke, another description of this parable, Luke adds a few details. He writes in uh, chapter 14, but they all alike began to make excuses, these people who were invited first. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. What's crazy is that these people, they knew that this wedding feast was coming. They had got the save the date. They had got the initial wedding invitation. They knew that this feast was coming, but they weren't prepared They're showing through their deeds that they value money and comfort and power and pleasure and security over being with the king. It's a great question for us, all of us, to reflect on and think, what excuses do we make for not being with the king? Especially if you are here today and you maybe are are interested in Christianity or you think the Bible's kind of neat, or maybe you just woke up early this morning and you're checking out church for the first time. What excuses have you been making in your life about why you're not being with the king, about why you're not accepting this free gift, this free invitation to enter into his kingdom, to enter into relationship, and to be with him? Or even if you have been in the church for a while or for a long time, but maybe you've never accepted this invitation Jesus is going to talk about this in just a little bit, about people who are among the people of God and who actually on the outside kind of look like they are Christians, kind of look like they are in relationship with the king. But truly, when we we look at them closely, they actually aren't. So what kind of excuses are we making for not accepting this invitation? Some of us might be saying, well, I don't accept anything I don't earn. That's that's an American value of working hard. I don't take any handouts. And so this free invitation, well, I'm not going to accept it because I need to earn it. So I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be a good person. And then I'll accept it because then God will have to accept me because I have worked really well well for him. Or some of us might be saying, well, I just don't want to lose my freedom. I've heard what Jesus calls us to. I hear that he calls you to die to yourself and to lose your own life. That's going to cost a lot. And I like my freedom. I like being able to do what I want to do. Or some people might be saying, some of us might be saying, well, I'm young. I'm in the prime of my life. I want to live up life right now while I'm young. When I get older, and when I settle down, then I'll think about this invitation from the king. Then maybe I'll accept it. Or a lot of us in my generation do not like commitment And just want to say, well, I want to keep my options open. I do like Jesus. I do like what he's done for me on the cross. It sounds great. It really does. But I'm a little nervous to make a commitment because what if something changes? What if a better deal comes up later? Or finally, like some of the people in the parable today, are some of us just too lazy or too apathetic? We're too comfortable in our posh American life, and we don't really respond to what Jesus calls us to. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm and another to his business. Verse 6, while the rest, so speaking of some of these other people, not all of them, but some of these other people that were invited first, but the rest seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Let's add to our chart here. So the next line. These servants. So the king is sending out the servants. He sends them out multiple times. So who are these servants? They're servants of God. Old Testament. Often they were called the prophets. And we as well, if we, if we take this parable and extend it to, to where we are today, we would also be some of these people. The people of God that he he sends out to tell people about this great wedding feast. So we see that some, they, they not only deceived the king and dishonored him and made these lame excuses, but there were some who even seized these messengers, treated them horribly, and even killed them. Throughout the Old Testament, God sent his messengers to the people and told them, repent and believe. Repent and worship the one true God and these people were called prophets in the Old Testament before Christ. Peter, when he preached last week, said that the job description of a prophet was not a very attractive one. The people then, much like today, really didn't like this message of repenting and believing. Uh, in Hebrews, they look, uh, looking back at these Old Testament prophets, writes about them. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35. Some were tortured... Refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. This is not like the Colorado stoned. This is like rocks were thrown at them until they died. They were sawn into, they were killed with the sword, and they went about in skins and sheep, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world Was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So, this same message of repentance and belief that was initially given to the prophets throughout the Old Testament was then given to Jesus' followers. And now, our message as a church, as Hiawatha Church, as Christians, this message to come to this king, come to the king who's given us this great invitation. This, relation, or this invitation to be in relationship with him, the message that we've been given is still today met with great opposition. We saw earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus writes, speaking to his disciples, speaking to us, "How the Church, and you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In 2 Timothy we read, Indeed, all who desire to live A godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just like these servants were persecuted, mistreated, some even treated horribly and even killed, just like these servants in this parable today, many of us are going to be called to go through some type of persecution, some type of being hated because of this message that we have. All right, back to our parable. So after much, much patience, Patience, much mercy and kindness, the king finally responds to these evildoers with justice. Verse 7 The king was angry, and he sent out his troops and destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. So, after much, much patience and generosity and kindness, the king finally responds with justice to those who rejected him and murdered his servants. Some commentators even think that this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And Jesus is reminding these listeners, his disciples, these religious leaders, and us as well, he's reminding us of this coming judgment of those who reject the king's invitation. But the beauty is, the story doesn't end here. It doesn't end with judgment and death. The story continues. In verse 8, Then the king said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both the good and the bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So because this initial invitation, these initial recipients were unworthy, they were unworthy because they disobeyed, because they rejected the king, they abused and murdered his servants. Because they were unworthy, the king opens up his invitation to everyone. Like we saw in Luke, he invites the poor, the lame, the disabled, the blind. And here in Matthew he says that they invite anyone that they could find. All that they saw, both the good and and the bad. Let's look at the last line at the table here. So now, the guests, in, uh, the second guests who are invited, described in Matthew here as the good and the bad, so now those are the people who now hear the invitation of the gospel and they respond. So this shows us that the gospel, or Jesus is teaching that the gospel is now spreading beyond these first people who are invited, beyond the Jews, beyond the religious Leaders to the Gentiles and to people from all nations. Now look again how incredibly generous this king is. We saw that all were gathered, both the good and the bad, the worthy and the unworthy. He invited the unworthy. Even the bad, the worst of the worst, were invited and welcomed by the king. And look how in contrast these people respond. They respond by coming, by accepting this invitation, by coming to the king, and by being in relationship with him. Some of us don't like this. Some of us, when we hear this part of the parable, it actually, it really irks us. We don't like how the king responds. The king's generosity actually kind of bothers us. It bothers us. Why is he inviting in everyone? Why, I understand why he would invite me in. But why is he inviting all these other people in? the worst of the worst, these people who are unworthy. Remember, this would be like if the president of the United States, and now this is not a perfect analogy because a president is different than a king here, but imagine if the president of the United States, after being rejected by his cabinet members, his advisors, his political allies, he goes out, think about this, the president, he leaves behind his secret service and his motor cage, and he walks out, and he invites the pimps, the drug dealers, the felons. He reaches out and grabs the hand of the homeless, the illegal immigrant, and the refugees. And he says, come, I prepared a great banquet. We're going to celebrate my son's, my son's wedding. How crazy is that? How crazy is that to think? The king sent out his servants, and he opens up the invitation to those who look good, but also to the greatest sinners of society, as well as those who are destitute and have absolutely nothing to offer the king. First of all, even if you were rich and powerful and prominent and from a good family, even still, you don't really have much to offer the king. But think about the people that he's inviting. The lame, the blind, the poor, the prostitutes. They have absolutely nothing to give the king. Nothing that he needs or wants. Nothing to offer. So do we think, check your hearts, do we think that some don't deserve to come to this feast? Are we upset that the bad don't have to clean up a little bit or pay for their sin in order to come to this banquet? If and when we struggle with this, when we see someone come to the cross who has lots of sin. And when we don't like that, when it bothers us a little bit, we're not understanding grace. We're not seeing ourselves in that person. We're not seeing ourselves as someone just as lowly, just as sinful, having just as little to offer, but being thankful that God saved us. Even the good were invited. So we're still freely invited by the king, and invited alongside the bad and the poor. So even these people, so we, we just contrasted with the people who have absolutely nothing, and the sinners, he also invited the good, the people that do look good. And if that's you, be, uh, be reminded that you're invited doing nothing, just as the prostitute and the lame beggar were invited. So one of our big, big takeaways today from Jesus' parable is that our lives as Christians should reflect our king. Now listen to this. This order, the order of which these two things go is imperative because we've been on the receiving end of the king's unimaginable hospitality, generosity, and patience. Because that's happened, because we've been invited to this wedding feast freely, having done nothing to deserve it, because of that, We can now and should be the best welcomer of strangers out there. The most generous and giving and patient and grace-filled people on the planet. Now again, that order is imperative. We're not really generous people and really welcoming people and very gracious and kind and patient people. And then the king invites us in because we're so good. But the reason that we even can do those things and the reason that we do do all those great things is because we first were freely invited by the king. So our lives should reflect what's happened to us. We see this all over the New Testament. Just like our king to us was hospitable and welcoming to us. Romans 15 we read, Therefore, welcome one another, he's speaking to the church, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you. So he tells the church, welcome each other. And the reason you're supposed to welcome each other is because first, Christ has welcomed you. We need to be generous people who welcome and invite in others who cannot repay us. In Luke 14, Jesus is speaking to a man who just threw a party. In Luke 14, Jesus talks to them, talks to him and he says, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, listen to this, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So he's arguing, don't just invite the people that are going to pay you back. Don't just throw parties and invite the people that are going to bring good gifts, are going to bring good food, are going to invite you to their parties. Don't just do that Verse 13, but when you throw a feast, because you're different, because you are one of these people that was freely invited by the king, but when you give a feast or throw a party, invite the poor, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And finally, in 1 John, we read about us, who have received this invitation from the king. We should be generous people. We should be giving people. 1 John 3, 16 through 19. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Jesus, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So in our story today, these first people that were invited, they loved the king in word. They initially said, I'm coming I'm coming to your son's party. I RSVP'd. I'm going to go. I am one of your subjects. You are a great king. But they didn't do it in deed. They're all talk. And all throughout the New Testament, we're reminded, if this is really you, if you are a person who has been invited by the king, into relationship with him, into his kingdom. That's just going to affect the way that we live. And remember that that order is so, so important. Jesus ends his parable today with a very strong warning against faking, against faking a relationship with him. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, the party's going on, He saw that there was a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we see this man who sneaks in to the party, yet without any wedding clothes. We see that he's speechless before the king which just demonstrates his guilt. He knows that he's not supposed to be in there. So we're not quite sure what is going on here with this whole wedding garments thing. There's not a lot of uh, literature in the first century speaking of what's going on with, with this wedding garment necessarily. We have, some, we have some good guesses. But what is probably going on here is that Jesus is teaching, just like he did in his previous parables, he's teaching that there can be people within the kingdom, or people within the church that surround themselves with believers who are seemingly close to God because they come to church on Sunday mornings or go to community group or in in our story here, they actually do end up at at this wedding feast. They're seemingly close to God, but when carefully examined, we see that they're not truly believers. Just like in our parable last week, or a few weeks ago, right after that, we saw that Jesus, he cursed a fig tree because the fig tree appeared to have fruit growing on it, but it really didn't. So Jesus ends his parable today with this beautiful reminder. He uses this phrase, many, many are called. A reminder that this invitation was extended to everyone. 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 So our faith, Christianity, it's both at the same time. It's incredibly, incredibly exclusive, and at the same time, incredibly inclusive. Christianity, or faith in Jesus Christ, it's incredibly inclusive, because like we saw in our story today, everyone, everyone is invited. It doesn't matter what your education is, what your gender is, what your nationality is what your experience is, your ethnicity, your age, or any other category that us humans place on each other. None of that matters. All are invited. All are invited. Many are called, as Jesus just said, but at the same time, Christianity is very exclusive. Jesus says specifically that he is the only way to God and that no one comes to the Father, no one gets to the King except through Jesus except through faith and belief in what he did on the cross on our behalf. Jesus is incredibly clear that there's only one way to eternal life, one way to forgiveness of sin, and one way to reconciliation with their creator God, with the king in today's story. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, the the Gospel Transformation Bible speaks of what's going on here at the end of Jesus' parable. The last paragraph of the section is a sobering reminder that the warning Jesus issued to the leadership of Israel in these parables is still valid for the people of God today. So even though in this parable Jesus is speaking to these religious rulers and leaders, who are hurting God's people, who are keeping God's people away from him. He's initially speaking to them, but it's still a very important reminder for us today. People are attracted to the church for a variety of reasons, and this might be you today. It offers a place to socialize. It offers opportunities to meet people of one's own age and interest and, and uh, organizational structures for helping the needy. As a result, people who, whose heart have never been transformed by God, can still find themselves associating with the church. They can be at this banquet, enjoying the banquet, but without any of these wedding clothes about to get caught by the king. The heart transformation, and this is what it is. This is what these wedding clothes are. Evidence in repentance, faith, and obedience to Jesus is the wedding garment that the guest lacked. Let's read that again. So this is what this wedding garment is. A heart transformation that is evident in repentance, faith, and obedience to Jesus. That's that wedding gift that this one guest lacked. As Christians, we are called to examine ourselves to whether we are really in the faith. There are many, many, many verses that speak of this, and I'm not going to get into them today, but I can give you them. We're constantly called as believers, as people within this church, to ask ourselves, are we in the faith? Do we see fruit in our lives? Are we repenting of our sins? Are we believing? Or are we someone that's just fooling everyone around us? who snuck into the church and who actually really like a lot of the things about this church, but we've never really truly repented and believed. All right. So we're going to end today with two things. So how does the gospel... In this parable, how is it applied to our lives today? First thing, we have to ask ourselves, have you received the king's invitation? An invitation to freely come to him, to enter into his kingdom, to enter into relationship with him and do nothing. It doesn't cost you anything. It's free. Ask yourself, have you received and have you accepted the king's invitation? Or Have you made excuses? Some of those excuses we talked about earlier. Well, not today. Maybe later. I have to earn it first. I have to look good enough first for the king to accept me. Or Maybe even some of us have come, have come to this great banquet, this great feast, yet without any wedding clothes, without faith in Jesus Christ, which then leads to us doing good works. Remember, Jesus taught here that all are invited and it cost us nothing. And finally, if we are true believers, if today you can say, yes, I did. I did accept the king's free invitation to be in relationship with him. I have repented and I have believed and now the Holy Spirit's working through me and I see good good fruit. If that's you, we need to ask ourselves as well, do our lives then reflect this great story that's happened to us? Do our lives reflect the king's free invitation to come into relationship with him? Are our lives full of generosity because the king was generous with us? Are we generous with our time, with our money, with our treasures? Do our lives reflect kindness because the king was kind to us? We were unworthy. We didn't look that great in other parts of the Bible, we've even called enemies of God before we were saved. So are we kind people? Are we people who welcome in other people? People that are undesirable, who maybe we really don't want to welcome or be around because they act weird or we don't like them or because they are offensive or because they smell bad. Or are we going to be people who reflect the kindness of our king, who welcome the most undesirable people out there? Are we reflecting our king by being patient people? Who remember that our God was very, very patient with us. Especially to us who, who came to Jesus later on in life, maybe not as a child. You especially can remember how patient God was with you. And even if you did come to Christ early on in your life, you can look back and see how patient God was was with you as you stumbled again and again and again and didn't get things over and over and over again? And finally, are we a people that are compassionate? Does compassion describe Hiawatha Church? Because it describes our king, a king who looked down at people who were lowly, who had nothing to offer him, and gave him the riches of his kingdom. The Bible says that in Christ, if we are in Christ, we receive the inheritance along with Christ. God the Father, the King says, this inheritance that I have, that I'm going to give to my son, I'm going to share that with my people. That inheritance, I'm going to share with them. So does compassion describe us as a church? Are we compassionate people that are kind and patient and generous? Not because that makes the King like us any better. Not because that gets the king to invite us into his kingdom. But we are these people because the king first invited us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and and how we get to see what kind of a king that you are, a king who is compassionate and patient and generous and kind. Holy Spirit, sink that deep into our hearts We pray that that would be flowing out of all of our hearts. That those words would describe this church because of what you first did. Pray for anyone today here who has never accepted your invitation. Who who either thought that they had to work really hard or look really good to receive an invitation. Or whether they've been waiting and having many excuses throughout their life. Holy Spirit, work in their lives. And we pray that those people would come to the cross today and accept, freely accept, with nothing in their hands, knowing that's nothing that they can earn. It's not because they look good, but it's a free invitation given by a gracious, loving King. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.